Season 6 of Let's Talk About Sects is proudly presented by Audio-Technica, who are a huge supporter of Australian creators and whose equipment is a big reason why the show sounds great. Each episode this season, we're giving away a pair of ATH SQ1TW wireless earbuds to a listener. Head to www.ltaspod.com slash win to enter. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone. Just letting you know that I'm going to be recording Let's Talk About Sect's first ever live episode at Woodford Folk Festival on the 1st of January, and it will come out on the main feed sometime after that date. It's going to be an episode about the 12 tribes, who used to run a very successful stall at Woodford every year. Their green juice was available in the festival store last year, when I also presented a couple of packed out sessions about cults and conspiracies. It turns out it's quite a lot of work to put together a live episode. Joe and I are rehearsing how to do the musical interludes from a stage and how to tailor the story for the audience and to a particular time limitation, which is something I'm not accustomed to. So this month I'm bringing you a couple of interview episodes to make sure you're still getting some new Let's Talk About Sects content while I prepare for the live event, and I know you'll enjoy them. Today's episode is a chat with Yakov Aron and Shula Karovsky, who spoke with me in Sydney. Yaakov and Shula were both born into the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic sect of Chabad, Shula in Israel and Yaakov in Sydney's eastern suburbs. Shula's family moved to Russia when she was five, then to Sydney when she was 14 years old. Today, both Shula and Yaakov are involved with the Tzedek Collective, an anti-Zionist Jewish group currently attending Sydney's pro-Palestine rallies every Sunday in Hyde Park and calling for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. For this special episode of Let's Talk About Sects, we discuss the journey that led them there. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This episode deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to racism, discrimination and prejudice, and also the current conflict in Gaza. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Yaakov Aron and Shula Karovsky's lives in Sydney's famous beach suburb of Bondi were lived largely separate from mainstream society, within the Hasidic sect of Chabad. Their family's lifestyles were a world away from the fashionable bikini and board shorts wearing demographics usually associated with the area. 
Though Yaakov disconnected himself from the sect's beliefs while he was still quite young, as a teenager he remained keen to join the Israel Defence Forces. Shula disengaged from her religious upbringing at the age of 19, when she was told it was time for her to get married. Yaakov and Shula generously shared a selection of their experiences with me, including some of the things that changed their perspectives from the ideology they were brought up to believe in. Maybe we'll start with you, Yaakov. Can you tell me a bit about your childhood and the belief system that you grew up in? Yeah, sure. Well, I grew up as an ultra-Orthodox Jew in the Hasidic sect of Chabad in Bondi, Sydney. I was raised in a home of six kids, um, and we rented a house directly from uh, the rabbi of the synagogue. Um, There was a hole between our house and the synagogue's playground, um, which was used quite regularly, about maybe as often as our front door. And um, my backyard kind of became like the unofficial playground for the synagogue. There was a really strong sense of community. um, And with that as well came the darker side of being very sheltered, very... um, closed out from the outside world um, and certain cult-like elements of the Chabad community were on display. Sure. And Shula, you grew up in the same sect, but your early childhood was spent in Israel. Can you tell me a bit about some of your memories of that time? Yeah, so my first memory is actually from a Jewish settlement we lived that's uh, only like around a year ago once I looked on the map I realized it was in a West Bank so in occupied territories um, it it was a very kind of sheltered s- small community a gated community where uh, the settlement itself started um, in around 1975 uh, recently I looked, looked it up it was nine couples, nine young couples, Jewish settlers that said to go out and take over more land uh, because the belief system was that it's um, all part of uh, Jewish land. It's all part of the Holy Land, Israel, which was given to the Jewish people by God uh, uh, as a, uh, yeah, it was chosen by God. We are Jewish people as uh, chosen by God to follow certain commandments and this land was given to them, to Abraham, in, um, you know, Isaac, all these Bible stories were really real. Uh, we felt that we were part of that continuation of uh, lineage and it was presented as a land that was uh, ours. That um, in, in that settlement, lived um, we lived for around two years. I was actually born in the north of Israel, and later uh, we moved there. It was um, my parents um, had a, a, a f- friends that already lived there, and they invited them. It was a process to apply. They didn't let everyone anyone in. Uh, you needed to have, I guess, certain ideas and like accept that ideology as well. And um, uh, but once they were let in, uh, we lived there for two years until we later moved to. Uh, another neighborhood in uh, Jerusalem and later we moved away back to Russia where my mom is from and uh, now in that um, uh, settlement itself um, 
we all we all were part of this community that was um, very. Uh, we felt like one. Everyone knew each other. It was a very. Um, actually, I had very happy. Um, happy childhood there, running around with all the kids. Um, one uh, story uh, that I do remember from kindergarten when I was about uh, three, four years old, we went on this excursion, a little excursion to the edge of the settlement where they were trying to expand it. They were building new, um, n- new areas. They've brought in portable homes, uh, but. Um, Later on, they had to remove them. We went on this another second excursion when um, the daughter of of our kindergarten teachers was actually uh, living there with her young newborn child, and they had to move uh, move away because uh, the story itself. I only recently, once I asked my mom what was actually going on, I just remembered in my memory it was just soldiers coming. Uh, basically getting uh, people to move their homes down to another area, another valley. Uh, what happened was that um, apparently there was a, some activists in in the settlement that wanted to expand. Um, uh, I guess the as part of the, the Zionist uh, ideo- ideology, the extremist Zionist uh, ideology to expand their land, take over more land. Uh, and um, they started building these um, homes, but then uh, some representatives from the Israeli government came in and um, basically brought the rabbi to a meeting and said that, okay, this is a bit too much. Um, uh, of course, these settlements are, they are given, they are supported by or implicitly Sometimes, sometimes not very directly, but they are supported by the Israeli government. Uh, but this time, for a reason, some military strategic reason or otherwise, some political reasons, it was told that they were this they were going a bit overboard. So they had to pull away and move somewhere else. Now, some of the people were very unhappy with that in the community. Like, how come the government is restricting us from fulfilling our rights to? expand uh, the land and um, there were this wasn't the first time and also not the last time that the settlers uh, these communities try to to go and take more land it's well, it's a part of a series of things and they always um, even once we also moved away we moved away actually because my parents were a bit more uh, ultra orthodox and less I guess Zionist and they felt like they, this community was a bit too Zionist, so uh, they wanted more of a religious education for us. And actually, one thing, I mean, I don't remember it, but my mom said, like she said that um, once we moved away to Jerusalem, I, I was, um, I said something. Oh, we lived in in Israel, and there we had everything. So I felt like we moved away from Israel once we moved away from this that settlement. We were taught that. That was all part of um, uh, part of the Holy Land. And you mentioned right at the start that it was only about a year ago that you actually realised that that was in the West Bank. Yes, that's right. I actually looked um, uh, on a map and researched that uh, settlement. 
should I say the name? Yeah, 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 Kochava Shachar, which means uh, in Hebrew, uh, Dawn Star or Star Dawn. I don't know uh, how to translate it correctly, but um, yeah, Kochava Shachar. Uh, I actually looked on the map where it where it was, and I realized that it was in the West Bank. It was um, already once I started to move away and realize how much of my upbringing was steeped in uh, Zionist ideology and a very um, extremist kind of Zionist um, mm. ideology. Yeah. yeah, it seems quite amazing, I guess, to me as a complete outsider to to understand that it took you that long to even know, know that that was a part of the West Bank and you had lived there yourself. When I was eight years old, I was um, first, I guess, introduced to political activism through, um, you know, my religious upbringing and connections because the, the, the ultra-Orthodox Chabad community is very closely connected to the settlements. Um, and our head rabbi, you know, very, very outspoken in support of it. the head rabbi, colloquially just known as the Rebbe, but his name, uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. And when I was eight years old, nine years old, uh, it was 2005, and Israel was withdrawing settlements from Gaza at the time. Um, a lot of those settlers in Gaza were ultra-Orthodox as well, and um, they were forcefully evicted against their will by the IDF. They poured wet cement on the IDF. They fought with them. There were terrorist plots that were hatched um, by the settlers against the IDF. Um, and, you know, IDF defectors who refused to participate in the evacuation. But there were kids in my school. We would regularly go down to places like Hall Street in Bondi Beach or Bondi Junction. And we would, um, you know, try to evangelize with more of a religious message and try to get, uh, you know, people who are non-practicing Jews that we find on the street to, you know, um, do something special and religious for the day. But in 2005, it took more of a political turn, and we were disseminating um, far-right pamphlets that came from uh, Kahanist groups. And Kahanists are like a, a Jewish supremacist movement within Israel that is also quite ultra-Orthodox. Um, Rabbi Meir Kahana, the founder of it, funnily enough, Bob Dylan's bar mitzvah teacher, um, is a designated terrorist. The party that he founded, Kach, is a designated terrorist group, not only like by USA and by other international groups, by Israel itself. <laughs> and it takes a lot for them to recognize uh, a Jewish supremacist extremist as, as a terrorist within Israel. And... You know, we were handing out pamphlets from Kahanist groups that were given to us with messages like uh, Jews don't expel other Jews. And we were giving them out on the street. I was only eight years old, barely old enough to even understand what I was passing out. But this is the way that indoctrination, not only religiously, but politically as well, is, is drilled into kids through Chabad from a very young age. And the evangelism... Yes, it does expose you to the outside world, but it also results in kind of like a backfire effect where the beliefs that you're evangelizing only get strengthened by 
people's hostility to that message when you preach it on the street. You think to yourself, clearly they know we're right, but they're reacting with disgust because they're offended by the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that same kind of dynamic happening in some of the other groups that I've looked into for the podcast as well. Um, and you mentioned, uh, you know, this was a period when uh, people were being removing the settlements from Gaza, but you mentioned to me earlier that there were, or there still are, financial uh, rewards or incentives for people to move into settlements in the West Bank currently? Yeah, so the Israeli government will um, subsidise up to two-thirds of uh, rentals or uh, new homeowners. Um, the land that they buy tends to be quite, price, quite uh, expansive, um, very good bang for your buck. Um, and there are, of course, a lot of new homes, very modern homes. There should be no mistake made that Israel is uh, bowing down to the religious Zionists who are not necessarily representative of, you could say, the, the Israeli Zionist dream in the way that it started. Zionism was originally mostly a secular movement with uh, religious factions, but... The settlers have become increasingly more powerful. Um, the religious are growing in their demographic. They have a very high fertility rate. Um, they are very organized in the way that they uh, lobby and uh, vote in blocks. And they, they have, I mean, very expansive land for very cheap prices. And it's gone to the point where Israel began with a very flawed system that allowed it and the settlers were exploiting this system back in, you know, the 70s. But it was uncomfortable for the Israeli government and now it's gone to the point where their powers become so strong that the the government um, enables and abets them at every opportunity. They withdrew 5,000 settlers from Gaza in 2005. Uh, around that time there would have been maybe 200, 300,000 settlers in the West Bank. And now we're talking 750,000 settlers in the West Bank. So the, the Israeli narrative and propaganda is, well, we withdrew settlements from Gaza. Clearly, you know, we are making an effort to move towards a two-state solution, to move towards peace um, because we've given that land back. Well, you took 5,000 out at a time when <laughs> Israel was relatively speaking more liberal on this issue. Um, and they poured wet cement on the soldiers and formulated terrorist plots. And now we're dealing with a more radical, more powerful settler movement that has doubled in size in the West Bank through being enabled by the Israeli government through subsidies, not only for homeowners, but also for, for new immigrants. They kind of like you could compare it to Australia, you know, you get a lot of special considerations on your visa if you live somewhere rural. Well, it's the same for settlements in Israel. And it's very clear that Israel wants to expand the settler movement. Mm -hmm. Did you have something to add to that, Shula? Actually, I can add about the subsidies. Uh, my family, um, what I know, we, for example... Uh, one thing, there was some extra health, free health care or like subsidized health care that we were given as those who lived in Jewish settlements. For example, one of my siblings needed some operation and 
she was able to get uh, that uh, quite without waiting for long. And I believe, I'm not sure exactly what, either free or subsidized uh, in Israel itself. So uh, we in, in the settlement itself, there wasn't much other than like um, a supermarket, a kindergarten, the, uh, so school, like school children would go to, to Israel to study or some or some other school nearby, but uh, the that healthcare for uh, that we received was um, was not something that every otherwise Israeli is able to receive um, always, uh, because for example, once later on we moved to to Jerusalem, uh, my mom realized that she wasn't able to get those same benefits as before. Uh, it's only then that she, uh, she says she actually realized that those extra healthcare benefits was due to us living in a, uh, in, a in this um, settlement uh, in the West Bank. So, yeah, we were able they give out more, yeah, subsidies that uh, or yeah, healthcare benefits to people who move um, who move there. Uh, at least that was at the time. Not sure about how now. Maybe it's even more since, as Yaakov mentioned, the yeah, el, the religious Zionists uh, and they have more power in the government and are making a lot of more of the decisions. And it's actually something that's is splitting as well Israeli politics between those who are against uh, or don't want to support that kind of occupation and the how much power. Th- in the government, uh, Netanyahu has given this um, far-right religious um, mm-hmm. zealots. Namely, yeah. in particular, there's a party called Otzma Yudit, which translates to Jewish power, which was born from Kach, has a lot of members from Kach, the party started by Rabbi Meir Kahana. So they're born from the ashes of the terrorist group that was Jewish supremacist, and now they start a new, pa- new party called... Jewish power, um, and they're in a coalition with Bibi Netanyahu's government. Mm -hmm. I want to get into that in a little bit more detail, but I first want to kind of rewind a little bit and talk about um, a little bit more about how you both came to disengage from your religious upbringings and, you know, Mm -hmm. what you had come to believe. So, Yaakov, you figured out at the age of 12 that you didn't actually believe in what this ultra-Orthodox sect had been teaching, which I find pretty astounding considering, you know, that had been your entire upbringing and that's such a young age to come to that realisation. So how was it that you came to that conclusion? Well, largely for me, I guess I've always been partial to being convinced by arguments that rely on wondering where the power is and why things aren't changing because of that. And this also ties into how I... I guess, left the Zionist indoctrination that I was raised with because to me, it isn't that I have two separate journeys from Zionist to anti-Zionist or from religious to not religious. To me, this is one very long journey with many small epiphanies along the way rather than, you know, big moments that everything changed. And for me, it was the, the Epicurean paradox, it's called, which is essentially um, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, then why is there still evil? And if he's only one of those, for example, 
all-loving but not all-powerful, then why should we worship him? If he's all-powerful then, but not all-loving, then what makes him a force for good in the world? And if he's neither, then why do anything at all? And I also came to realize that this argument can be applied to the Israeli government in the sense that their power over the Palestinian territories is so dominating, um, to use the legal term, there is a case of racial domination against a uh, ethnic group. And that that is the starting point for a lot of the uh, discussions that, that, you know, follow from Palestine and Israel. So Palestine is, of course, far from perfect. October 7th and what happened there was a terrorist attack and a terrible tragedy. But to me, what ultimately is the starting point is where does the power lie and why aren't the people in power not doing more for it? So at 12 years old, I, I left Zionism and there was a real kind of very absurd, surreal, fugue-like state. I felt like I was walking in a dream, dissociation, uncertainty about some really basic things, whether I'm real or not, whether I'm alive, whether really basic ethical things uh, are really right or wrong. You know, I got into some really cooked conspiracy theories when I was younger because everything that I was taught when I was really young was proven to be false. And you follow on from that thinking, well, what if um, these things I learned from the outside world was really false? I mean, one of my gateways to the outside world was was music. And I was probably listening to music that I really shouldn't have at the age of 12. I got really into like Tupac is still alive conspiracy theories because, you know, it's like Rene Descartes, the philosopher, um, started questioning everything and he figured out that... Um, you know, you can't stick your head in an oven very safely. Uh, and he put that to the test and, you know, the, the experiment didn't work out in his favor. And so he kind of started from there onwards to live to tell the tale. For me, there were experiments that I did where I was very uncertain if I would make it out alive, if God would strike me with a lightning bolt afterwards or if I would be possessed by demons for um, even thinking about this, you know, things like, eating bacon for the first time or our head rabbi used to give out dollar notes for charity to his followers and his followers would line up for several hours um, very, very late into the night, maybe even early hours of the morning to receive a dollar, one dollar US from him. And he would give it out to them so that they can give it to charity. But because this note was holy and touched by the, the rabbi, they kept that $1 note and instead gave a, a different $1 note from their own wallet to charity. And these $1 notes um, are passed on as kind of good luck tokens or, or things with, you know, spiritual value um, to this day in the, the Chabad community. And when I start to noticeably, I guess, drift away from religion a rabbi gave me one of these dollar notes so that I could be kind of led back onto the right path. And um, I decided to do an experiment and I went into the bathroom and I burnt the note and I flushed it down the toilet. 
and I was not struck by a lightning bolt. So there are these sort of experiments that are quite common with people who leave Chabad through you know, trial and error and see if they make it out alive or not, and uh, I'm still here. <laughs> right, yeah, I can imagine, well, I can't imagine, I think that must have been a pretty scary type of experiment to play if your mind is still, you know, a little bit like, what if it is true? What if I'm wrong? Um, and, and Shula, I wanted to go a bit further into your, in some ways, your upbringing was mm-hmm. even more um, sheltered than Yaakov's. You didn't have access mm. to television or radio or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, that's that's right. We, uh, growing up, we, yeah, we didn't have TV. Um, uh, the only music we listened to was uh, what's considered religious Jewish music. And also some classical music as well, because my mom actually grew up. Uh, um, she was she she was a violinist. So before she joined um, and became religious, and and joined Chabad. Uh, and but otherwise, uh, we only sometimes watched some old seventies um, Soviet movies uh, and maybe some old also French and Italian movies that we never actually advertised to anyone else uh, we wouldn't I wouldn't tell that to other, my other classmates um, that was back uh, when we were lived in Russia um, because that was considered as a yeah like a secular anything secular anything outside of the re- of the religion was was not really allowed so at the various little exposure uh, to that. The Once I, for example, started leaving, at, at one of the first, I wasn't even still thinking of leaving, but uh, there was some, I don't know if that, it might not sound even that rebellious, but I was listening to some radio when I was 16 on my phone secretly, and I remember the first one of the first songs I heard was Rihanna Umbrella. I was so, it was mesmerizing this sound you know that you can music can sound actually kind of good (laughs) (laughs) and not just the Jewish uh, that religious music was um, there was not everything was bad there was some nigunim or melodies that were actually kind of kind of nice to to listen to but another uh, another thing uh, was books as well. Only Jewish books uh, were allowed, or any or anything that we were not uh, never read Harry Potter or any any of that. I overheard about Harry Potter once. I, I remember that, but I never. I, I knew there was some magician, and magic was not allowed. Although, of course, if you think about it, uh, there was so much magical thinking uh, in my upbringing. It just was. Anything that was the wrong kind of magic was not. Uh, but I started uh, reading once I moved. We already moved here to Australia to uh, Sydney. I got um, as well as starting listening to some secular music uh, secretly. I also got a library card uh, secretly and started getting books, just whatever whatever I could, uh, whatever whatever just looked kind of good. From like true crime to Nietzsche and Plato and and like erotic, just some random erotic uh, little stories. Also, I loved reading autobiographies of Holocaust survivors. Uh, but uh, even I'm not even sure that was not allowed. But I felt like any library books were forbidden, so I would hide them 
beyond religious. I would pretend I'm reading some religious book um, and hide hide the book behind my what I'm actually reading. Um, yeah. Actually, on on that note, could I just um, ask you to talk a little bit about the high school that you attended in your last two years of school yeah. in Sydney, which I think some listeners would be surprised to know existed mm. even. Yeah, so when throughout uh, my schooling, we always went to a, a very religious schools uh, run by Chabad. Uh, also, it was always divided by gender, so all, all girls' schools, so... Yaakov would have, I would have never really probably interacted because boys and girls were completely separate um, from a very young age, to be honest. So, yeah, so the when we moved here to Sydney, we went straight to a religious school, a Chabad-run school, Yeshiva, or uh, Cheder Chabad, and, uh, which mostly taught only religious studies, uh, Jewish religious studies. We only had a, around two hours of so-called secular studies, English and math. And, and it was, even that was felt more of like an afterthought where, because um, th- there was a lot of disrespect, not just from the students, it felt that disrespect came from the management itself towards anything secular. We were never taught any much of science or History was only really Jewish history, and that also all convoluted kind of in much more kind of religious, in religious thought. And, and if, for example, this school recently um, shut, was finally, I guess, shut down because they didn't comply with a children's check, even though they had history of, of some sexual abuse that happened, back, at least what was reported around in the 80s or 90s, but that was covered up. Don't know much more than that. Uh, but at the time when we went to the school, no one ever talked or we knew about it. There was, And it was only later I found out that they a lot of teachers were also not accredited. They failed on their children's check. Children failed also on a lot of their financial management. Uh, in general, the school did not provide us with uh, opportunities to finish with an HSC or finish school to be able to go to to further studies if we wanted. Uh, we were uh, given the option in the girls' school to finish, to do... Actually, we were not really given. We were just we did this diploma in aged care, which was around like once a week class where we just... The teacher would read uh, to us and gave us would give us the answers to the to the tests to the questions so that we just complete this diploma. Um, yeah, we I left basically school with I think it's a U twelve I don't know if it's even a U twelve certificate, but not much of a of, of of anything to be able to further to have a life like outside of the community. So not equipped to no, get into university no, or not choose at all. A, yeah. No. Yeah, I to go to university. I later already only once I started. I started living uh, religion. I I did a TAFE course by myself, um, and then later on went on to uni. Um, however, yeah, with with the school education I got, um, I was set behind very much. Mm. Yeah, and so tell me a bit more about your disengaging with religion you'd, you'd been hiding these books behind mm. your religious texts and you'd obviously been thinking about it for a little while but 
where do you see the kind of final point where you were like, no, I'm done? <laughs> mm. I think that was already actually a year after I finished school. For that year, a uh, year after school, I went to another Jew. It was a Jewish women, uh, an institution for Jewish women for the practices for to go after school to go for one more year of only Jewish studies, only religious studies, and then after that you expected to get married. So once uh, that was uh, was was called a seminary in Melbourne. Uh, it was around there I started, I think, actually, rather than making me more religious and more committed, I believe my first kind of doubts started to come in about whether I actually want this kind of life. Uh, once I came back, my dad was, I think the point when I was, I realized that I, this is not for me, was when my dad said I was 19, well, got to find a husband now for you. So, and I realized I don't want to get married. I don't want to, well, not now at least. Yeah, I don't want to have a family. I don't want to just be a mother. I, even though I remember as, as a kid, uh, whenever people would ask me, what do you want to be? You know, I would always say mother because that was what instilled in you, especially as a, the oldest girl in a, a family with five kids. You are basically, you become like a second mother to... And th that was what you are, the aspiration is always, you as uh, women are more as the mothers and and wives. Uh, so, but I realized that, yeah, when I was 19, that's not what, what I wanted. So, but I didn't know what I wanted instead. I just realized that it's not what I wanted. Yeah, and I yeah. think astounding to even kind of consider that there could be other options for mm. you, that that was your entire life and then to kind of even start to think about you know it doesn't have to be that way I think that's quite incredible really yeah I guess it also came my with my there were some of my siblings my, my one of my brothers uh, stopped practicing or being religious much younger um, so I saw that also some other members of my family left my mom left left religion that wasn't what actually stopped me. I still was believing it was, but once uh, I think it came to a more serious decision like marriage, then I was uh, I I stopped and started thinking and realized that I don't actually completely believe everything. I was doubting. For me, it was very important to understand what was the actu actually true, mm. and it took me a while to understand what I feel is true and is God. Is God even real? And it was a process, mm -hmm. a long one. Mm -hmm. And part of it was also n not just uh, the religion, but also the ideas about Israel and Zionism. And all of that was similar to Yaakov. It was actually because it came, everything you grow up in that re religious community, everything, you see everything through religious uh, perspective. So, the ideas about Israel were also through that, through this extremist Zionist um, religious perspective. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and actually on that note, I wanted to ask you, Yaakov, about um, you'd kind of been disengaging with the, the religious beliefs in terms of the ultra-Orthodox belief system, but you actually 
went to Israel and came away still pretty keen to kind of join the IDF, right? When you kind of, when you grew up, tell me a bit more about that. Well, because for me, my Jewish upbringing had two elements, mostly religious, but secondarily um, connection to Israel and its government. I'm a dual Israeli citizen. And, you know, for me, it was always that when I graduated high school, or even really before I graduated high school, I, I was expected to fly off to a, a really extreme yeshiva, an ultra-Orthodox school in either Israel or New York at the age of 13, 12, and, you know, be learning Torah 12 plus hours a day over there and just be fast-tracked to becoming a rabbi. And, you know, I, I left just in time and, you know, became skeptical of the whole indoctrination uh, when it came to religion just in time at the age of 12. But from then on, the plan was uh, go to the army because that's, that's the Israeli army. Australian army was never discussed. And, you know, for, this was the way that I clung on to elements of my Jewish identity in the way that I knew how because the religious aspect was uh, gone and I could still do what I could with my connection to Israel. I became very involved with uh, Zionist youth groups, um, Zionist political groups in uni, went on a study tour to Israel with the Board of Jewish Education, New South Wales. Um, Again, we had no idea when we were passing over the border into the West Bank or when we weren't. We were just traveling and having a good time. But I came back from the trip to Israel. We made a number of pacts between us young teenage boys that we would all see each other in the army and that we would all train and um, be physically fit and ready. and, And some of those you know, made it to the army and joined, I I guess started to become a little bit more, I wouldn't say anti-Zionist, but, but a liberal Zionist when I was around 18 in uni. And I um, decided that the IDF wasn't for me, but I continued to be quite active in politically Zionist circles. And, you know, when I was, when I was uh, in high school as well, just before that, I joined a Zionist youth group, which has very clear fascist elements. They uh, founded a paramilitary group with Mussolini uh, in the 40s and and Mussolini approved for them to have a um, a military base that was government funded to to train up. And they remain unapologetic for any sort of connection to Mussolini to this day. Um, And they identify as part of the revisionist Zionist, um, I guess, faction, which is the same as Bibi Netanyahu's. And the revisionist Zionists have always been very clear in their writings, like, for example, the Iron Wall essay by Zev Jabotinsky in in the, I believe it was late 30s, early 40s, where he explicitly says, we are going to have to kick the Palestinians out because we are taking their land and they will never forgive us for this. Uh, we won't be able to live peacefully with someone whose land we've taken and we'll need to constantly uh, dominate them until they decide to leave of their own accord and we can live on their land in peace. And Zev Jabotinsky founded this this uh, Zionist youth group I'm talking about called Betar. 
And this was the way that I, um, I guess, reclaimed my Jewish identity as a teenager in a way that wasn't religious. And it was a, it was a natural segue because the Chabad Jews are, are already extremely conservative on so many other issues. Mm-hmm. And um, I wonder, Shula, perhaps you could tell me what you were taught about Palestine and the Palestinians. Mm. Yeah, so I guess even though we lived, just to I guess add a point, um, even though we lived in at some point in uh, se- in this uh, Jewish settlement, which was uh, religious Zionist, we ourselves never considered ourselves like our family didn't consider ourselves actually Zionists. We were first of all religious Jews. Um, however, even though we in Zionist were these secular people, the and anything secular was was not good. But it was really now reflecting. It was of course full of those very religious Zionist ideas um, of that the land is ours. That as in the land, this Israel, and it's the full. I don't know if. We would draw these maps, which included everything that was Israel, as in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, so that the whole, that whole, like, I, th- I believe, I'm not sure, I think it's called, like, the man- Palestine Mandate. That whole part of it was considered part of the Holy Land. So the Palestine, uh, for our belief, uh, then, what we were taught about who then the Palestinians are, we actually never use that term I that Palestinians were we never I actually I never even knew that they were a people we were not taught that what we would refer to them instead was Arabs uh, or Aravim in Hebrew so there were just these Arabs living in this land as well and they they were the ones who were taking land from us so the the idea was is that this is a Jewish land and we uh, was given as to us by God a few thousand years ago and promised to us as the land of uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, and we are the descendants from them as a Jewish people and this is our inheritance. So the to explain then how there are these people who live there or have lived there for some time. The what we were taught was that they and what was told to me was that there are these different Arab people from Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, all these places around that moved there at some po- some point recently and uh, therefore they are not they're not actually indigenous to the land. Whereas instead, the Jewish people, based on the Bible, are the ones that are indigenous to the land. Uh, and that's what, um, I guess, growing up, that's what I believed. And only more recently, uh, once I left religion, and also more recently when I started looking into the origins of Judaism, how it came about as in uh, a local religion in in this among a Canaanite uh, uh, groups and uh, one of them was Israelites and they worshipped also various gods you have a Baal 
uh, like and every group had its own main god and yeah yave i guess became or and el uh, they actually morphed into one uh, eventually and uh, judaism like any other religion was or in i guess any other culture evolved eventually to become what we what we have now and even judaism itself is not a one monolithic group there are many different uh, various groups and within judaism itself there each each group has slightly various uh, beliefs about what judaism is so my i would say that my experience um won't just emphasize it's what we believed it was part of this smaller portion of the bigger like jewish jewish groups mm-hmm. not everyone ha whoever is jewish uh, or even uh, religiously jewish necessarily believed or believes what um i grew up with mm. so yeah so that was that was the ideas we had about i guess palestine did not exist in our mm-hmm. uh, really um because palestinians were not a real nation mm. i yeah kind of um touching on a bit of what you were saying yakov i heard you speak on another podcast and uh you you spent some time on something that i think might be confusing to other people than me which is that there are different permutations of zionism anti-zionism pro-israel and anti-israel attitudes that exist within various facets of judaism itself i wondered if you could spend a little time trying to <laughs> untangle that yeah sure and shula as well has already touched on this that really technically speaking we did not grow up as zionists i only learned what zionism was when i was around 15 how would you define zionism um well there's the academic definition and there's the more modern definition of the way it's come to to be framed um the more modern definition um has shut out a lot of discourse that was you know really rife within zionism when it was first formed the modern one would be the creation of a jewish state in the land of israel um for the sake of jewish self-determination and maintaining our own security and safety and traditionally i mean 100 years ago there was a political or nationalist zionism which was secular and there was religious zionism which believed you know god gave us the land and we need to return to it not because of security or self-determination but because this is our religious destiny and then there was cultural zionism which believed that you know jewish self-determination um can also be done uh, as a diaspora through you know creating religious institutions and communities and groups that are able to you know be proud and outwardly jewish and partake in some way that's recognized by the state and that this can be done in in the diaspora in places like australia now i would not usually say that i'm a zionist because of the modern definition that it's come to take on which i very very firmly disagree with but i mean if there's really some time to inject some nuance into the debate i grew up as a religious zionist i became a political zionist and today i would technically be called a cultural zionist who's against the establishment uh, establishment of a of a jewish state in the land of israel i believe in 
Jewish self-determination in the diaspora, which is also known as the Bundes movement. And when I was growing up as a Chabadnik, we wouldn't, we didn't even know what Zionism was. Um, and if we did know what Zionism was, we would say we weren't Zionist. But in, in academic definitions, we would have fit into religious Zionism in some ways. The thing with Chabad is that they do not believe that the state of Israel should have been created. They believe it was created uh, as a sin, as something that went against, against God's plan, that God put us in exile 2,000 years ago and he destroyed the second temple and that he's never lifted that exile. But then they say, well, you know, we've established the state. Jews are all there now and they're fighting for their lives. And now we have a religious responsibility to claim as much land as possible, to expand our borders, to take all of the biblical land, to defend every single one of Israel's um, most conservative and expansionist measures. And um, that doing all of this will, will hasten the coming of Messiah in the end of days. So that, that was the way that I grew up. But we didn't wave the Israeli flag that much. It was kind of a point of contention in the community. We pretty unanimously refused to sing the Israeli national anthem and considered it blasphemous. And yeah, we, we had a difficult relationship with it. The, then there are other sects of ultra-Orthodox Judaism, for example, uh, Satma or Naturikata, which are quite visible if you look for videos on the internet um, of you know, Jews at Palestinian rallies, they, they're very visibly Jewish, you know, big black hats, beards, gowns. And they believe that God, um, they're just much more uncompromising on the position that Chabad takes, much more hardline and strict on it. Well, it, you know, God put us in exile. It was a sin to found the state. It's still a sin to support it. And we're never going to have anything to do with it. Um, and I would urge people who support Palestine for um, their own ethical, moral, or political purposes to steer clear from these guys because um, these guys are much more cult-like than Chabad. They're much more restrictive and dominating over their members. Um, you can be rest assured that they won't stand next to um, you at a, at a rally for women's rights. And they, the Natura Carta have dabbled in Holocaust denial they attended a, a conference in Iran and they, they've, you know, had leaders in their community that have released statements that have revised the figure down to, you know, several hundred thousand of, of casualties in the Holocaust. And so these guys, on top of that, they, they support Palestine for all of the wrong reasons, just like Israel supports Israel for even more of the wrong reasons than supporters of Israel do. I mean, they're fundamentally coming at it from a religious extremist perspective. And um, they believe that, you know, when the time is right, Jews will be able to colonize and settle in the land of Israel, the, the Naturi Kata and Satmar Chassidim. They, they believe in doing that eventually, just not now. They believe in doing that when the Messiah comes. You can be sure that they believe in... Um, quite a uh, bloody war to end all wars and apocalyptic scenario for the Messiah, which, which is not going to look pretty for the Palestinians. And so um, 
you touched on this a bit earlier, Yaakov, which is um, some of the extremism within the Israeli government itself and links to terrorism. And I think we hear a lot more about the terrorist elements within Hamas than we do about the terrorism links within the Israeli government. So I think, you know, it should go without saying, but it probably is important to say that none of us here support anything that Hamas did on the 7th of October. But I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about Israel's own Minister of National Security and his links with terrorism. Yeah, um, and Shula would also be great at speaking about this as well. So he has his own party that he started, um, which partnered up with uh, uh, Batal Smotrich's party. Um, Itamar Ben-Gvir started the, the Otzma Yehudit one. <laughs> Sorry, these are a lot of Hebrew words. Otzma Yehudit means Jewish power. Oh, uh, this is the Jewish power. And the Jewish power party is exactly what it sounds. They're exactly what it sounds. Itamar Ben-Gvir uh, is in coalition with Bibi Netanyahu's government and same with Batsala Smotrich. Itamar Ben-Gvir is so extreme that uh, the IDF has watched him and, and the Israeli secret service agencies have watched him for decades now um, for connections to terrorism to the point where the IDF refused to let him serve even though he did his best to, to enter. Uh, mind you, it's a conscription system over there, but they uh, they actively rejected Itamar Ben-Gvir for his association with terrorist groups, namely the, the Kach Party and Rabbi Meir Kahana. And the, when the Kach Party folded, formally speaking, at least as a party, there's still, um, you know, underground terrorist groups and, and underground organizations that call themselves Kach today. But the Otzma Yudit party was literally born from the ashes of the Kach party. And now Itamar Ben-Gvir has negotiated in his role as a, as a coalition member of Bibi Netanyahu's government. He's the minister for um, national security. And he's advocating for essentially his own paramilitary group, which Bibi promised to give him this as part of the deal, the coalition deal. A, essentially a brown shirts paramilitary group of trained people, mostly settlers, mostly people who have not served in the army because they're quite religious or quite extreme. And that this group is privately managed at, by Itamar Ben-Gvir, directly overseen by him and his ministry. And it's gone to the point where, you know, Israel was always quite a conservative state. It's always been a settler colonial state. But we're at the point now where someone who was refused from the army 30 years ago is being given his own private power military force as a, as a cabinet minister. And if you rewind even, you know, further back, some of Israeli's first prime ministers were leaders of very clearly designated terrorist groups. Yitzhak Shamir was the head of the Stern Gang, which was kind of a vanguard within the Irgun terrorist group, which Menachem Begin was the leader of. Both Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Shamir went on to become prime ministers in Israel. They were responsible for the King David Hotel bombing, which was a UK uh, military base, a British military base in the Mandate of Palestine. Um, something like 150 people dead. Um, a civilian target as well, 
They bombed up bridges and civilian infrastructure belonging to Palestinians. They uh, this turn gang committed countless massacres, such as the Dar Yassin massacre, and they were born from the revisionist Zionist faction, which I've mentioned before. Bibi Netanyahu also belongs to this faction. Menachem Begin started the Likud party, which Bibi Netanyahu now leads. And this history is deeply ingrained within, within Israel. There's no discussion anymore about these people's connections to terrorism because they've become mainstream. Itamar Ben-Gvir, if he you know, does his job, maybe 30 years from now, no one will talk about him as someone with terrorist links. And it's, it's looking quite dark. Yep. And I guess what I'm kind of getting at here is that I think it's notable that we expect people to disavow and condemn the actions of Hamas in discussions about this crisis. A really important framework to understand is there is no Palestinian state because of the racial domination. Now, Hamas is kind of like some sort of government in Gaza, but not really. The last elections they held was in 2005, which is, of course, a massive democratic problem in itself, which no one at this table supports. But a lot of the people dying in Gaza today are not even, weren't even alive when the last election happened today. You know, about half of the casualties are children, and the election happened 18 years ago. Israelis are responsible for their democratic process. They might not be all of them responsible for everything their state does, but they're responsible for their democratic process. They get a vote, and their government is a centralized state authority with policies, with institutions, with bureaucracies, with not a paramilitary, not, a, not just, well, they do have paramilitaries and terrorist groups, but more importantly, they have an army. They have international recognition. And what comes with all of this is the responsibility to have something uniform that follows international law and that follows what you'd expect in the way that a state acts. And on top of that, as a state, Australia supports the Israeli state, our funding, our taxpayer money, our military technology, surveillance technology, foreign aid goes to Israel. And the same cannot be said with Palestine. So we need to ask ourselves, one, why would we hold a decentralized stateless people to the same standard and to the same responsibility for their terrorist groups as we would a centralized state authority for their army? Um, and the second question is, why would we feel like we need to answer for Hamas's um, terrorist attacks as much as we do um, Israel's military occupation, considering none of our taxpayer money goes through Hamas? We have very limited power to change what Hamas is doing over here in Australia, but we can, you know, withdraw all of our funding and our, our support for Israel because this is something that we are enabling. We're enabling Israel. We aren't enabling Hamas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a really important and clear point to make. Uh, and so I do want to say that in talking about this subject, you know, we also do need to acknowledge that anti-Semitism is a, like a huge global problem, right? And so I'm wondering 
perhaps you, Shula, like how do you think about this when you're kind of teasing out how you feel about these issues and your mm. critiques of the situation? Mm. Well, actually, I think um, even though it's such... It's it's a anti-Semitism, I feel, I guess in a nutshell, it's been weaponized to a, a real problem that has existed for a while and still exists has been weaponized to to justify some of the atrocities that Israel commits against uh, the popula- uh, the Palestinian population, both the I guess the war or better term maybe genocide in Gaza and generally just the treatment of uh, of Palestinians uh, in Israel and also it uses it to to gain support among the diaspora Jewish communities to for Israel as presenting itself as a heaven again against anti-semitism for the Jewish people and it's something that I feel um, really resonates with a lot of people of Jewish descent of Jewish heritage because I do, I do feel definitely in my family there is still a lot of trauma from anti-Semitism, both from, not just from even the Holocaust or, and World War II, but even from before and even after that. Personally, I grew up with stories in my family of how, um, I mean, my grandparents only survived because their parents, they were children at the time, or were born right after, right at the end of World War Two, they survived because their parents ran away to Central Asia, to Uzbekistan and um, Azerbaijan. But some of their other family members, cousins, did not did not survive. Uh, they were either some of them actually served in the Red uh, Army, so in the Soviet Army, so they died on more because they were uh, soldiers. It was, I guess, a different uh, reason, but some were, they came back and they didn't find some of the cousins or grandparents that uh, stayed in Odessa. So it was Odessa in Ukraine because, I mean, we don't know. There's no records there, like in some of the concentration camps camps in Poland. But um, yeah, the Jewish community there was completely killed. So that trauma, those stories still, would. that's what I grew up with. Also, after my my grandparents, my parents as well, grew up with anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union. So there there was quite a bit of discrimination that was happening. For example, my grandmother wasn't given, wasn't allowed to go to university because the Jewish quota was filled. So they didn't want to have any more. I'm not sure even how official that was, but it was a thing because they had Odessa had a big Jewish minority. To get in, you had to compete with a lot of anyone who is Jewish, anyone else who, who was, yeah. Uh, so another example was my aunt uh, would she t- uh, would tell, uh, was telling me about how uh, when she would go out, go around on the streets, and not even just taking out the rubbish, so they would sometimes call out to her, well, the, this is Jewish slur, Jidovka, and would tell her to go to Israel. So that was in the 70s. They didn't actually go to Israel, but my dad did. So, yeah, is, uh, in, that, in that sense, what I would say, um, to try to, I guess, wrap up, 
and yeah, anti-Semitism is is a problem. It is rising, but it also what I think Israel with being presenting itself as a Jewish state, then to Jewish people as a Jewish haven, it then conflates uh, between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Uh, and 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 just anyone who is who is criticizing Israel for its actions, and that just to me actually makes the problem of, of anti-Semitism even worse, because you then it's hard even for me sometimes to try to decipher where one starts and the other one ends. I would say it's it's important to look. What I would see though, unlike maybe some other people in the Jewish community, I would see anti-Semitism just generally as a discrimination that happens to uh, and can happen to any group of people and any group of people can become uh, racist to others or discriminatory to, to another group of people. There is nothing that there's nothing unique in my opinion specifically to anti-Semitism that's different to any other discrimination that happens to, to others. I think we should see should see it more as an issue that that needs needs to be tackled together everyone again just against discrimination of anyone as being for their identity it shouldn't be just a problem of anti-semitism it should be it should, we should look at it and also try to solve it more as an issue of discrim of people discriminating just for someone for their identity and that that also fear of an anti-semitism then what happens as well is that it brings people to hate. Uh, so a fear, the fear uh, people in Israel seem to actually be very concerned with anti-Semitism. Remember on the trip I went, I talking to to Israelis, they were uh, asking me as part of a, other a group of Australians that were there, um, how is anti-Semitism in, in Australia? How how bad is it? And I remember being quite surprised because to me Australia was was great it was I I hardly experienced anything because to me in comparison I just I would always compare to the stories I heard from my grandparents about how uh, or my great grandparents how they were thrown off trains because or or not allowed to university or things like that but I think it's 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 part of a whole package of being fed fear and turning that fear later into hate mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Yes. Well said. I, that makes sense. Well, it does. It really does. And I I guess in witnessing our leaders as well as some major news outlets appear to be out of step with what the public expects as a response to what they can see happening on the ground in Gaza over social media, I'm really concerned that erosion of trust will cause people to turn more and more to sources that can be ripe with dangerous conspiracy theories, which ironically, we know that these often lead back to anti-Semitism themselves. So as someone who's fallen to some pretty extreme conspiracy theories in the past, Yaakov, how do you make sure that you're not buying into disinformation narratives at times like this? Well, there's, there's two things that I do when I'm reading a story on the media. One is I try to read from a range of sources, not just, you know, one story from a left-wing paper and another story on something else from a right-wing paper, but the same story, both sides of the spectrum, because I find that I learn a lot more when I go through it with a, a fine-tooth co and 
try to pick out especially what it is that either side is avoiding mentioning because you know for all of the increasing distrust in mainstream media the the fact of the matter is that if they actually blatantly lie it really opens themselves up to you know a massive hit on their reputation and defamation cases and things like that they very rarely lie but they will absolutely go wild with the implying things or with avoiding context or you know cherry picking facts and when certain context is avoided because certain papers trying to build up a narrative and you see that same fact same bit of context actually addressed on on the other side of the spectrum by paper covering the exact same story really draws attention to the fact that the paper that avoided it finds this fact to be very inconvenient to their narrative and they've avoided it deliberately because they know they can't lie as journalists but they know that they can be irresponsible as journalists the second way that i'd really like to um, approach the conflict is less from a conspiracy narrative of thinking this was an inside job and the government planned this all along um, and more by thinking of it in the context of Naomi Klein, the political scientist's shock doctrine theory, which is the idea that governments love it when a crisis or scandal happens because it is a catalyst for very rapid change in, in legislation or government policy or military action. It's a very strong catalyst and that, you know, a a crisis or tragedy should never go to waste. So we can see from the increasing power of the settler movement, of the revisionist Zionists, of people like Itamar Ben-Gvir, that the calls for a much more violent solution to Gaza and the West Bank has been an agenda that has been pushed for a very long time and that the people pushing this agenda are growing in power and in capability. And it should come as no surprise that the most right-wing government that Israel has ever had, that is in coalition with parties like the Jewish power, should be, you know, the government that um, actually pushes this agenda through when it is faced with one of the greatest tragedies in Israel's history. Because... For them, this is the perfect opportunity to ram this through with very little pushback in the international community, within the media, within the Israeli population, and to whitewash or excuse the um, war crimes that are happening there as being justifiable because of a previous war crime or terrorist act that has happened. And so it, it isn't that what happened on October 7th was an inside job, as many conspiracy theorists are claiming, or that Israel had inside or advanced knowledge that it was going to happen, but, but enabled it. Rather, this was a, it's much more sound with the evidence that we have right now, which um, admittedly is, is not very supportive of Israel's government narrative. But that isn't to say that we should start filling in our own narratives about conspiracy theories are inside jobs in its place. What we can say is that there is a, a wealth of evidence that they have um, been drafting plans for 
the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians for a very long time, and they're finally getting their opportunity by applying Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. Uh, just to add, I think as well, um, Israel was the Holocaust, uh, from my as I understand, was one of the things that pushed the creation of Israel, and that was. The Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum in Israel is literally built on top of the remains of the worst massacre site in Israel's history, the Deir Yassin Palestinian village in Jerusalem. Uh, there's no memorials to the Deir Yassin massacre throughout all of Israel, let alone on the remains of the old village. But the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum sits on top of the village. Oh, okay. <laughs> that I didn't know. But what I did want to say is... Israel, I think, without the Holocaust probably wouldn't have, or not sure, but it seems, it, I think it's a very, it was a very important push for the United Nations to create as, as a certain way to kind of maybe get rid of the Jewish people somewhere, somewhere else, somewhere away to kind of try to compensate for what happened, perhaps, and, and for their ignoring the genocide, right, the governments at the time. The for the Jewish people, I think the the lesson that they came is that anti-Semitism is is a real evil, and we should try to do something to protect ourselves. But I think we should, and and that phrase never again came about. But I think the real lesson from it is not that it happens just it, or can happen just to Jewish people. Is that it should uh, it happened before and it. Uh, has happened since to many other groups and peoples and ethnicities, as we know, just a quick one out of my mind, like Ar the Armenian genocide or uh, in R Rwanda. So uh, it's not unique, and we it should be the lesson that we get from uh, anti-Semitism and the Holocaust is that it should it's not never never again for the Jewish people. It's never again for anyone. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. what I wanted to add. Yep. And the Holocaust isn't even unique to Jews. Uh, we died alongside political dissidents, yep. um, Soviet prisoners of war. Gypsies. Um, yeah, Roma people, gay Roma. people, disabled Sorry. people, black people. Um, and the estimates of the casualties are around 6 million Jews, 5 million uh, MISC, non-Jews. So uh, this isn't even our genocide our holocaust to claim it's it's equal parts a whole range of minority groups and with the anti-semitism uh, i mean to me the majority of anti-semitism today is the result of conflating judaism with zionism and saying that israel is the state of the jews and what goes along with that is of course to the um, less politically literate anti-Zionism becomes anti-Semitism. And this is a problem which is both on the uh, Zionist side and on the Israeli side. And um, there are certainly Zionists who I would call uh, philo-Semites, who are non-Jews, as in still the type of racism, but they adore Jews in a condescending way as, you know, they might be evangelical Christians, let's say, like John Hagee, who recently spoke at a, a 
massive rally in Washington, D.C. for the Israel lobby who said that, you know, the Jews deserved the Holocaust, that God brought it down on them, that, that Hitler was a Jew and, you know, that the, the Jews were sinning and so God punished them for it. And, you know, Richard Spencer, who says that he's a Zionist, he's the Nazi famous for being punched live on air during an interview back in, like, 2016, describes himself as a, as a Christian and American Zionist in the sense that he believes America should expel its Jews to, to Israel and that Israel has, um, you know, every reason to exist as a Jewish state and America has every reason to exist in the exact same vein uh, as an ethno-nationalist state just like Israel, but an ethno-nationalist state for white Americans. So he considers himself a, an American Christian Zionist. And, you know, the Jews should go over there and the white Americans should stay over here and our, our ethnic groups should be apart from each other and dominate the minor minorities. Now, there's a massive problem with anti-Semitism when it conflates Zionism with Judaism and anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Shula and I, we organize with the Tzedek Collective, which is a group of anti-Zionist Jewish activists. We recently held our own rally and we attend every single one of the Palestine rallies in Sunday at High Park that have been going on since the beginning of October. And as far as I know, there is no Tzedek member who has faced any direct anti-Semitism as a result of this since October. We have, um, you know, come across the odd placard, a, a pamphlet or the odd social media comment, which isn't directed at us which is anti-Semitism from a uh, Palestinian side. But what I will say is that all of us have been bombarded with allegations from Zionism, name-calling, things like, you are Nazis, you're no different from the Nazis, you are Kapo Jews, which were the Jews that enabled the, the Nazi regime for very small benefits and turned other Jews in. They say, we're self-hating Jews, you know, terror sympathizers. And to me, this idea of a self-hating Jew is very interesting because if you believe in self-hating Jew, that is to say that Jews can be racist against other Jews, then surely it would also be racist to use those words so freely to call out anyone that you disagree with on something that, again, being anti-Zionist is not anti-Semitic. But they are using our Jewish identity, our ancestry, as a way to create maximum leverage for insult in a way that strikes very deep at who we are. And that leverage is our Jewish identity, coming from other Jews calling us self-hating Jews, which is to say they believe that Jews can be racist against other Jews and they need to look in the mirror. And is there anything final that you would like to say about the work that you're doing now in this space? Sure. Well, Shula and I uh, are both quite politically active. Um, we organise with a range of groups, um, but we uh, are particularly involved with the Tzedek Collective um, and with the anti-Zionist Jewish left. The Tzedek Collective believes that the best way that we as Jews can work towards a just solution is by making clear that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism and that this is not being done in our name, that Jews can support Palestine as well. 
and that we can do this through using Judaism religiously, politically, culturally as our guiding force uh, and principles and through expressing our Judaism at, at rallies for Palestine to make it clear through our actions that we feel safe in these environments and that anti-Semitism is not the primary concern for us when there is a war crimes happening in Gaza. You can follow it, set a collective on social media. We have a Twitter, we have an Instagram, we have a website. Our inboxes are open to people who want to reach out to us. And um, there are a range of other ex-ultra-Orthodox Jews who are now members, um, as well as Jews who grew up more secular or from other religious sects. And we are proud to say that at least one silver lining of this is that Jews have been organizing in Palestinian circles more than ever before in Sydney and have been motivated to mobilize politically as a strong, proud and active Jewish left. And all those links will be in the show notes. So thank you so much, Shula and Yaakov, for taking the time to share your experiences with the podcast today. Thank you, Sarah, for your time. Thank you, Sarah. letting us speak. Thanks to Yaakov and Shula for speaking with me for this episode. And as I mentioned, you can find links to the Tzedek Collective in the show notes, as well as links to some of the other things we spoke about. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say. That link's in the show notes too. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was produced by me, Sarah Steele. Matt Brazel did the editing and mixing, and the music was by Joe Gould. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 6 of the show. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their range of headphones and turntables and mics that'll make your remote working setup on point. For every episode this season, a lucky listener will win a pair of ATH-SQ1TW wireless earbuds. Head to www.ltaspod.com win to enter. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com.
If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention at iasp.info. Catch you again next episode.